Well, here we go. This has been a very information-packed couple of days. We have covered so much material, but yet there is so much still to cover. How many of you were not here, first part of it? Well, for those who weren't here, my name is Rick Oliver. Uh, my wife and I travel around um, the U.S. and around the world, actually, um, bringing the truth of God's word. You know, God doesn't need me or any scientist to prove his word. It stands very nicely alone. But what we do need to do is be able to present the alternatives, the other side of the story. Uh, I taught high school for years uh, before I got my graduate degree. Then I taught college. And it just breaks my heart to see students today that are being taught what to think, not how to think. They're just taught to the test. They're discouraged from questioning. They don't... They, Common sense is just thrown out the door. And the sad part is there is so much information available, but it is so hard to find sometimes. It's so buried, so repressed. You know, uh, we've talked about some really uh, amazing scientists. Uh, I remember when I used to <laughs> kind of debate my students, I would always just dismiss creation is out of hand. Oh, well, they're not real scientists. You know, they have a degree in theology from some seminary somewhere. I had no idea the degree of, of education and, and the, the greatness of, of the creation scientists. My mentor, to show you how God works, I could not have paid for the education I got after I became a Christian, which was one month after my 40th birthday. I came kicking and screaming, folks. It was not some warm fuzzy. I mean, I, I, and I ended up at the church I swore I would never set foot in. Uh, literally, I was at the Orange County Fair in Southern California about a year prior to uh, when I accepted the Lord. And I was talking with a group of people, and religion came up, and I just, every time, I, I would just bristle. Like I said, I was not a, an atheist. To me, that was too passive. I was an anti-Christian. I felt it was my duty as a scientist, as a teacher, to protect those poor, ignorant Christians from that myth. You know, little did I know. But I made a vow. I raised my right hand and said, you know, if I ever get weak enough, I need that religious nonsense, I would go to any church other than that one out here in Costa Mesa with all those weirdo Jesus freaks. That, that was my statement. As I told you, I used to sit, go down with my friends and we'd get on the bluff there in, in Corona del Mar where they had these huge baptisms and we'd throw water balloons at the Jesus freaks. I kept trying to hit the bald guy that was baptizing everybody, Pastor Chuck. Well, as you saw, I showed you, Pastor Chuck married my wife and I. He baptized me in that same cove and I worked for him for three years, wrote all of his science curriculum for the camp. I know God has a sense of humor. <laughs> Here I am. But after I became a Christian, God brought some of the, the most incredible men and women into my life. My mentor uh, was Dr. A.E. Wildersmith. He and his wife, Beartra, uh, kind of took Susan and I in. I guess he felt I was this wayward waif, and, and he mentored me for several years. He was the most gentle, sweet, kind-hearted, brilliant man I've ever met. He had three earned PhDs. 
Then I was connected with Dr. Kurt Weiss. Kurt was a paleontologist from Harvard who got his PhD from Stephen Gould, who was one of my heroes of the modern Darwinism. And it just went on and on. God just brought all of these people. And so I really get upset when I hear teachers or people just dismiss the creationists. But you know, the sad part is it's really hard to find some of the materials. That's why Jay and I both have tables. We have lots of resources. Uh, we've dug through, and in fact, one of the, uh, you know, I asked the question yesterday, how many had heard of Dr. Warner Gitt? Dr. Warner Gitt should be a common, everybody in this room should know him. He has written a, a number of books. He's a professor at the Federal Institute of Physics in Germany, he was, has a very heavy German accent, so you've got to really listen close, but he's, He's written a book, and the one that really impacted me, it was called In the Beginning Was Information. And I picked up the book, and I thought, well, I'll just kind of go through this. It was excruciating. It was so scientific, so hard to get through. But what I did is, is I, I tried to summarize it. So I actually have a, a one-hour DVD uh, where I, I, I just kind of summarized the book on information, but the most important part of that was, and what caught my attention, and what has really created havoc among the, the secular humanists, is he, he makes this quote, and he says, information does not originate by itself in matter. And that's a pretty straightforward quote. But the problem is nobody can argue with that. Nobody disagrees with that. The secular Christian, whatever, information does not originate by itself in matter. Well, it's kind of like Jay said last time, then you just ask the simple question, then where does it come from? You know, information, uh, you know, this computer didn't just spontaneously generate the information. The information in the computer came from the creator of the computer. The information in the, these PowerPoints came from the creator of the PowerPoint. So. Another statement that's right in the face is where every physical event in cosmic history represents a piece of information. Every cell in your body, and every, the DNA carries more information than the entire Library of Congress. Well, there you go. If information does not originate by itself in matter, where does it come from? You know, where does the information in the universe come from? How about the creator of the universe? You, you see, using logic and common sense, it'll just take you right back there. But as we said, science cannot prove or disprove anything. Uh, or historical scenarios, we can only use our preconceived philosophical worldview to come to some conclusions. I showed you yesterday the, the actual eruption of Mount St. Helens and the geologic catastrophism that occurred there and how I saw things that I thought took millions of years or hundreds of thousands of years happening quickly, rapidly, and in ways I never, ever expected. But the, the dating procedures, that, was, that seems to be such a big thing. And, and I started off uh, yesterday's conference with 
the uh, dating procedures. How do we date fossils? Remember, I, I spoke to 600 science teachers and scientists at a convention and a conference down in Southern California a number of years ago. And I kind of, it was very intimidating because some of the people in that room were my heroes. And so I was, a, I was an uh, anxiety was, uh, I thought I would be clever and I asked a question that I knew I would get a response for. I asked them how we date fossils. And the entire room, and I knew they would respond because they were all science teachers and scientists. But when I asked them how, they said, carbon 14. Guys, that was absolutely stunning. Because I knew, and the world knows, carbon-14 cannot date rock. Once the fossil has become a fossil, the cells have been replaced by minerals, turning it to rock. Carbon is useless. But the other problem is no scientist in the world will stretch carbon into the millions. Even as a secular humanist anti-Christian, I never pushed carbon. I never personally pushed carbon past about 40,000 years. But that was ridiculous because I knew that it, you know, you can get up to about six or eight thousand years, pretty good ballpark figure. If you get past that, it starts to drop into the abyss. And like I said, no scientist, even that I showed you the the uh, chart from the UC Davis textbook, where it talks about carbon and in, in, in the uranium, the isotopes. Even there, they didn't push carbon past 70,000. So again, it begs the question to the students that they never know to, to ask. That's why we, I titled my presentation, What You're Not Being Told. You know, they don't know. They don't know to ask. So what I wanted to do is kind of give you a little example of how we do these dating procedures. What scientists don't tell you is most of the dates that I would use or get were selected dates. See, I would send out my uh, material to numerous labs. Like I showed you that chunk of the lava dome from Mount St. Helens. We went in there in 1992, 12 years after the eruption. The, the lava dome that had cooled and crystallized into an igneous rock called dacite, we could use radioisotopes to get the million-year dates. But the problem with that is you can't date anything other than igneous rock, and fossils aren't found in igneous rock. They're found in sedimentary rock. So you see all the problems? There's no real method to date the actual fossil. We date the closest igneous rock, and then we measure. That's why we're so meticulous. For example, if I find my fossil, I start looking for igneous rock. And if I find a sample that's, say, six inches above my fossil, so we date that igneous rock and it comes back at two million years. Now I estimate, based on my preconceived worldview and the, and the slow process of layers being laid down over millions of years, and since my fossil is six inches below the rock, then I say, oh, my fossil is 2.6 million. So now I publish my paper. Science finds fossil 2.6 million years old. Based on what? Based on that's what I wanted it to be. The other thing is we would send it out to numerous labs, and then I would pick the one I wanted, the one that most fit my world view. 
and see, I could get anything I want. And the other thing is, you know, I talked about yesterday, I put that quote up from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I had it on my refrigerator, I had it on my mirror. Attack the false idea, not the man who holds the idea. Isn't that a nice thought? Wouldn't that be nice? Except for the fact that my ideas are pretty firmly attached to me. And <laughs> so you attack my idea, I feel like I'm being attacked. So how do we stop that? Stop attacking. Pray for each other. Allow people to have different opinions. You know, that's legitimate. Like I said, it's okay for us to have different opinions. But it's not okay for me or any scientist to inflict our opinion on our students or on the public as if it were fact. Let's allow room. The other thing is, is we need to work together. Pray for each other and stop attacking. Teamwork, see how much more we can accomplish working together? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, what a very simple, understandable statement. And as I said yesterday, one of the principles in science is called Occam's razor. That's the simplest of two or more competing theories is normally the correct one. Keep it simple. That was drilled into me as a scientist. Keep it simple. The KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. All of this. But yet, as scientists, we can complicate the baloney sandwich. We can, we can mess with it. And God tells us, do not add to or take away from his word. And even as Pastor Lane wrote, wrote this morning, you know, the heavens are torn like a, a garment, stretched like a scroll, rolled and torn, flexible. These are things that really come into play later in my conversion. Because like I told you, once I first, when I first accepted Christ in 1987, I really struggled with the age of the earth. So what I tried to do is what a lot of people do, is I tried to have it both ways, one foot in the world and one foot in the Bible. That's called theistic evolution, is that I tried to bring God down and put him in my box that fit my worldview. And that's where God started that first cell and then let it evolve, you heard that one. That's called theistic evolution that God started it and then let it evolve from one flesh to another flesh right on up through the chimps into more to humans. Well, the problem with that is that allows for millions or hundreds of thousands and millions of years of death and suffering before the fall. So what was the cross all about? You know, before the original sin. <clears throat> but that's why I put up that other quote from Dr. Michael Roos. We're talking about two faith-based religions. You either put your faith in man's word or you put your faith in God's word. And guys, I really don't understand when I see these young Christian men and women graduating from colleges that when push comes to shove, they cop out for man's word over God's word. But it's hard when you pay that money and that time to get the degree. You don't want to be dismissed as less than but I'll tell you, I would rather err in the favor of God. And the way you find the truth is you put your own nose in God's word. You develop that relationship with the person who created the universe, the person who wrote the book. That's how you get the best information. I want to show you, we're going to do a little test here in a minute. And I'm going to give you an example of how we 
We can get the dates we want and that sort of thing. But I wanted to show you this. It's not just the public schools that are causing the problems. Look at this. It says, many professors view their mission as helping poor right-wing Christian children outgrow their parents' faith. We're just trying to open their minds. That's what a college education is all about. Yes, we are Christians, but we have to challenge our incoming students' narrow fundamentalism in order to broaden their perspective and make them well-educated. Do you catch what that's saying? That's like that quote from Dr. Ernst Meyer I showed you yesterday. You know, no educated person any longer questions the validity of the so-called theory of evolution, which we now know to be a simple fact. What? But see, the name-calling. If you don't believe it's a simple fact, then you're one of those uneducated people. And I did that. I would pat my students on the head and say, oh, you poor little ignorant Christian, go back to your desk. Now, how much of that do you think they can take in front of their peers? See, I would intimidate them into silence. So we're going to do a little sample here. Now, I'm going to turn you all into scientists. You're all scientists. And we're going on this great expedition. We're going out on this fossil dig. And you're, gonna, you're being led by this great scientist, me. And we are going to try to determine some things about the fact. So here we have a fact. Here it is. So what is missing from this fact? Well, to give you some choices. Now, I, I did this for those 600 scientists, and it was pretty amazing because uh, you know we counted. So I want you to raise your hand. I'm actually going to count and see. Because I already have determined in my mind what I want that fact to be originally. So how then do I get this information so that I can publish my paper and say, scientist finds facts? So how many of you think it's A? Raise your hand. Let me see. Wow. Now, think. remember, you've got to think outside the box a little bit. How many think it's B? Ah, there we go. All right, how about C? Yeah, there's a few original thinkers. How about D? Anybody believe it's D? Oh yeah, good. See, you got to think outside the box. What about uh, E? We've got a couple of those. And the last one, F. Well, obviously, by the, if we did science by, you know, the number of people, you know, by majority, you know, like what they say, the majority of scientists believe, well, there's a couple of problems with that. It's kind of like the, the climate change. Remember that document? 2,500 of the world's leading scientists signed this document. The problem is, when they went back and checked the signatures, they found out that there was not one single climatologist signed it. There was PhDs in accounting and in mechanical engineering. Everything. That'd be like if you're diagnosed with a brain tumor, you would most likely go to a brain surgeon, not a podiatrist. So, first of all, the majority of scientists, what does that mean? So we do it by majority? All right, we are. We're doing it by majority. The majority of scientists believe that it's B. Well, that's exactly what I wanted it to be, was B. So now I can publish my paper and say it. But what is the best way to find out what it actually was? Yeah, first of all, yeah, be there. You know? 
See, that's the empirical. Remember that definition I put? If it's not empirical, it's not part of science. So how would you empirically prove spontaneous generation from one little chemical pond that Darwin said? You can't. It's impossible. How do you empirically prove uh, the cosmos? <laughs> you, know, you don't. But what's the best way would be if you were there. If you were there, now you would have an idea. But what's the next best way? What's the next best way to find out what that really was? What? Yeah. See, I had one young lady at one of the conferences. She was a pretty smart one. She, she, she knew the best way. See, I drew it. So what's the best way? Is ask the person who drew it. Ask the person who wrote the book. So she did. She asked me what it was. I told her. It was exactly as I drew it. So do you see what I mean about how I could get any answer I wanted? Well, that's what we did with the dating procedures. We sent out the rock sample from Mount St. Helens to nine different labs. And we, then we can pick the one we want. But in that case, it wasn't that. We wanted to see how accurate they were, which we found were pretty bad. See, you don't do science by majority. So we're going to talk about one of those subjects that caused me the most grief, the cosmos, the speed of light. As I said, I accepted Christ in July of 1987. Six months later, I threw the, got up, walked out of the church, and drove to Big Bear, California, and threw the Bible off a rock. You know, the, my sister bought me this cool King James Bible with a leather cover and a dove on it, you know. I went back into the world because I couldn't come to grips with the age of the earth and Genesis. But see, God says by faith, but not blind faith. He has given us the information. But see, I was willingly ignorant. I chose not to believe in God. And that's, that happens. And if you choose not to believe in God, that is your right. I can't argue with you. Because you don't want to believe in God. Because I didn't want to be accountable to God. I didn't want to share the glory with God. But if you tell me you don't believe in God because of all the scientific evidence, now I'll argue with you. Because, no, it's, there's a lot of worldview involved, a lot of speculation. But the planets, you know, and, and it's got Pluto on there, and that's one like Jay was saying this morning, you know, it was good, for, you know, eggs were good, eggs were bad, milk, you know, all this stuff. Pluto was a planet, now it's not a planet, now it's back to being a planet. But see, what you're not being told, that's the ticket. You know, how many of you seen these? Well, we've seen some on the, on the slides, uh, these pictures being sent back from NASA. These absolutely mind-boggling, beautiful pictures of these uh, galaxies and star clusters. How many have you seen? A few hundred, a few thousand maybe? You know how many have been sent back? Millions. But a lot of them haven't been released because they need further interpretation before the ignorant Christians can get it. There are things going on out in, in the cosmos that is absolutely stumping the scientific community. There are things that shouldn't be doing, but they are. There are things going different directions that shouldn't. All of these things, but that's not what you're being told. So let's take a look at some of the things that you're not being told. Here's just a little example. That's the sun. And you can see, look at the, look at the, dis, the difference between 
earth and the sun, the, the mass. And as Jay pointed out earlier about the anthropic principle, you know, 10 to 10 to the 123rd power. I forget what he said. It was trillion, 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 trillion. It actually comes out to a sideways eight, infinity. That's the odds of being just right. Look at where we are, just perfectly right. That's just in the cosmos. What about all of the other little things? Just the, just the right amount of oxygen, just the right amount of, of blood pressure. Just, you know, it's just on and on. The order of planets from the sun is Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. So when God says in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. I mean, how can you look? You know, I live in Arizona. And where I live in Arizona is pretty remote. We don't even have a traffic signal in the whole town. We have... Uh, we have a little gas station, a post office, and a mom-and-pop store. It's 45 minutes to go to Walmart to shop. And I'll tell you, when it gets dark, it gets dark. And when you lay back and look up into the cosmos and look up into the stars, the feeling, the glory of God is just overwhelming. But see, the students are told that this cosmos just came about and Earth being in just the right position and just the right size came from this massive explosion. I find it really interesting too that the astronomers, they have a really uh, unique way of explaining everything. It's called the large impact scenario. If they don't have an answer, they just say, well, a large impact, boom, that's it, and that explains it. But I also find it interesting that how many scientists are, the majority of the scientists are claiming that Mars, which has no sign of water, was once covered entirely by water. But yet the Earth, which is mostly water, they say never was covered by water. You know, I mean, it doesn't make sense, common sense. But here is... The statement I was talking about, evolutionists evoke catastrophes over and over again to explain their models with no actual, little or no actual evidence to support their claim. They just state it and the students are to accept it. Here it is. Sure enough, a new theory soon came to the rescue. Boom. The large impact scenario. That explains everything. How did the moon get here? Large impact scenario. How did the plane? Large impact. You know, with no other information. But the solar nebula model, which is the number one theory taught to the students, is this. It says the solar nebula model is the dominant evolutionary model for how our solar system came into existence. It formed from a swirling cloud of dust and gas particles approximately 4.5 billion years ago. End of discussion. That explained it all, right? See, that was one of the problems that I had. As a secular humanist, I never had a professor a teacher, a scientist, anyone ever able to explain to me satisfactorily what it was that banged. Where did that swirling cloud of dust and gas come from? 
no explanation. But yet when I went to God's word, he says he created ex nihilo, out of nothing. He created the material that the cell is made of. You see, he created it all. Time, space, everything. This is the best that the world has to offer to our students. The only problem with that story is that we now know that particles don't clump together. They annihilate each other out in space. And they call these planetismals. You know, all, but where did the material come from that exploded into these particles anyway? There's never any explanation for that. This is out of uh, Astrophysical Concepts, page 553. Look what it says. A large percentage of scientists, both astronomers and astrophysicists, believe that our solar system evolved into existence over a very long time when dust particles started to clump together into bigger and bigger clumps. See, and eventually they became planetismals. Once these planetismals have formed, further growth into planets may occur through gravitational accretion. But here it is. Just how this takes place is still not understood. Wait a minute. I thought the kids, when I talked to them, when I interviewed young Christian men and women, college graduates, to teach at my school, they had no idea there was any problem with the Big Bang. They thought it had been proven, everything, but... See, the scientists know that there are a lot of that, like I showed you yesterday, the cover of Scientific American, where it says, you know, our best guess about how the cosmo, the Big Bang occurred, must be fixed or replaced. That's on the cover of the science journal. Why would you fix it or replace it if it wasn't broken? But see, the students aren't being told that. And sadly, the teachers don't know that. You see, I didn't sit out with some premeditated desire to deceive my students. See, I was deceived, so I just passed it on. And that's what's happening. Most of the time, the teachers don't know any better. But the sad part is once they do know better, they continue the myth. As I showed you in that article out of Scientific American yesterday, where it says, even though we know it is not an established fact, we teach it to the public, the journalists, and the students as if it were. That's in writing. I didn't just make that up. It's in the science journals. Guys, where I come from, that's a lie. We know it's not a fact, but we're teaching it as if it were. And then there's a, we have some other ones, one where the publisher of a textbook, when they were confronted with the fact that the material that was, they had in there was, was not accurate, was not right, you know what they said? They said, well, yeah, we know there's problems with it, but it's so visual. The kids, when they're older, they'll understand. So you lie to them now and hope they'll learn later. That's just not right. That's why Jay and I are out here, to bring the other side of the story. This is Jeff Cousy, Planets, the First Moments. This is out of Nature magazine. Look what it says. How the first stage of this process, you know, the accretion, primary accretion works is a fundamental unsolved problem of planetary science. Now that's not some Christian or creationist making this stuff up. That's out of Nature magazine, folks. The scientists know it. That's all I'm asking. Then why don't we just tell everybody? Why don't we tell the students, tell the teachers that there just might be another explanation? 
But no, that's not being done. It's just being fun. All right, we've proven it. Shut up. Sit down. That's it. How about this one? The formation of planetismals, the kilometer-sized planetary precursors, is still a puzzling process. How does that fit with that definition I showed you yesterday? From the National Academy of Science, their definition says, if it is not empirical, it is not part of science. Empirical means you can test it and confirm it, folks, or falsify it. How do you do that? How does this fit? It's a puzzling problem, but the students don't know this. Here's uh, Richard Dawkins. He was being interviewed. I, I, I put this out. I, I'm still trying to figure this quote out. It says he was being asked about getting something from nothing, you know, the direct contradiction to the first law of thermodynamics. He says, of course, it's counterintuitive that you get something from nothing. Of course, common sense doesn't allow you to get something from nothing. That's why it's interesting. Why, what is interesting? It's got to be interesting. In order to give rise to the universe at all, something pretty mysterious had to give rise to the origin of the universe. So there you go. <laughs> but see, that can be taught. That can be read in the classroom. From the journal Science says the origin of stars presents one of the most fundamental unsolved problems of contemporary astrophysics. But not one single student knew this. Not one single applicant. I was the superintendent of schools up in the Santa Cruz area for a science school. I interviewed young Christian men and women to teach at my school. And over the entire time, all of the years I was there, None of them knew any of this. And they would get mad at me because of what they didn't know. That's why that little, I showed you that clip last night. It's called the knowledge filter. It's filtered through our preconceived worldview. I showed you this yesterday, but I just wanted to show it again just so you can see the kind of faith I had. Remember I said two faith-based religions? Where you put your faith? This was out of Astronomy Magazine a number of years ago. But look, it's talking about matter and antimatter and how it survived after because it should have annihilated. So the, that sec, last paragraph, look what it says. How did matter and antimatter survive annihilation? It is possible that the antimatter did survive, but it somehow resides in a distant part of the universe that is too far away to see. It could be that there are anti-galaxies with anti-people somewhere else, noted MIT physicist Jonathan Fang. Do you find that a little bit absurd? But see, there's what I mean about faith. I had absolute faith in my religion. I worshipped at the altar of science. I believed. Now, which takes more faith, to believe in God, which is the best documented piece of literature on the planet, or to believe in anti-galaxies and anti-people. But that's the other thing that's occurring. Most of my science journals have pretty well accepted the fact that the Big Bang and spontaneous generation are pretty well bankrupt. So guess what they're turning to? It's called transpermia or panspermia. That is that aliens brought life and started it here. Well, you've got to laugh, but that's... Anything but God. See, it takes a lot of faith. And boy, did I have it. That's why my prayers this morning was, God, give me as much faith in your word as I had in man's word.
Here's that quote I wanted to show you. It's out of Scientific American, 2013. Look what it's at page 38 if you're checking. Look, it says, the idea of inflation, that's you know, from the Big Bang, is so compelling that cosmologists, including me, routinely describe it to students, journalists, and the public as an established fact. Folks, where I come from, that's just a plain lie. But look, it says, talking, says, Something peculiar has happened to the inflationary theory in the 30 years since Dr. Alan Guth introduced it. Over the years, the evidence for inflation has become weaker. But the students don't know this. The teachers don't know this. They just say, well, you know, the Bible can't be true. You know, the science has proven everything. Guys, that's just plain nonsense. Here's that quote right on the cover. Look at this why our best explanation of how the universe evolved must be fixed or replaced. You see, it's not Christians or creationists that are talking this. This is the scientific community, folks. See, they know there are problems. Fight on our students. Here we go again, Dawkins. It says, after the Big Bang, we're told life spontaneously arose from ordinary chemicals. But even the most ardent evolutionists will admit that they cannot explain how this happened. And when he was asked whether he had any idea how life started, here's Richard Dawkins' reply. No, nor has anybody. What? I thought it was all done. It's a done deal. You see what I mean about what we're not being told? How about this one? According to most models for the formation of the universe and our solar system, many of the observable objects we see should not exist at all. And there is no satisfactory scientific explanation for their existence. Why don't the students know this? Why don't the teachers know this? How about Mercury? Let's start there. Mercury. Inside Mercury, based on planet, you know, the, the space program and the things that they have gleaned over the years, they find that it's, it's way different than it should be. It, the core, it shouldn't have the magnetic core that it has. It shouldn't be the size it has. It, it appears to be young. All of this stuff that's not being told. Here we go. The driving force behind previous attempts to account for the planet Mercury has been to fit the high density of the planet into some preferred overall solar system scheme. There's a good scientific empirical term for you. It has become clear that none of these proposed models work and the high density is conveniently accommodated by the large impact hypothesis which makes Mercury unique. You see, there's the large impact again. That's out of evolution, a new perspective. See, that's not from the Christians. What about this one? What you are not being told about Mercury. Mercury should not have a liquid core and no magnetic field, but it does. Mercury's magnetic field is decaying rapidly and indicates a young planet. That's what you're not being told. But the students aren't being told that either, nor are the teachers. That's the part that's mind-boggling. 
How about this? Theory says mercury should not have a liquid core and no magnetic field, but it does. Chemical condensation models indicate that sulfur cannot condense in the primordial soup, uh, solar nebula, at the heliocentric distance of mercury, but it did. You all catch that? You know, I love that word, heliocentric. You know what that means? How close to the sun it is. But you see what I mean about what we know, what is fact versus opinion versus theory? There's nothing wrong with the theories. It's good science, but let's not inflict our opinion as if it were fact. Here you go. If mercury were billions of years old, evolution says mercury can't be dense, but it is. Mercury can have a magnetic field, but it does. Volatile elements discredit the solar nebula model. Magnetism and geological activity make it look young. Mercury is not the planet described in the science books. But see, that's what you're not being told. Well, how about Venus? Let's take a look at Venus. What are we not being told about Venus? Same thing. It has a core that does not fit. It doesn't stand up to. It rains sulfuric acid on Mercury. Wouldn't that be a fun place to live? It says, what you're not being told about Venus is the hottest planet in the, our solar system. The average temperature is 900 degrees Fahrenheit. The entire planet is covered with CO2. Its surface is not at all what scientists expected. There are no tectonic plates and no magnetic field, and the entire planet appears young. Again, that's out of the science journals from NASA. But here's the solution. A new theory soon came to the rescue. The large impact scenario. Explains everything, all right? That took care of that. So we'll move on to the next planet. Earth. How about this one? Here we have the planet. It says, evolutionists still can't figure out why Earth has a magnetic field. The magnetism for generating the geometric field remains one of the central unsolved problems in geoscience. That's a report from the National Geomagnetic Commission. But the students don't know this. The Earth's magnetic field is losing, look at this, about half its magnetic field every 1,400 years. Magnetism is almost as much of a puzzle now as it was when William Gilbert in 1603 wrote his classic text concerning magnetism. Magnetic bodies and the great magnet Earth. So it's, it's still puzzling as it was back in the, that was in the 1600s. We knew as much then as we know today. But yet it's been proven the Bible can't be true. All evolutionary models say there should be no water at all on earth. But that's not what we see. And yet how is it that they're so stubborn that they cannot allow the planet, there could never have been a worldwide flood, but yet Mars was one time completely covered in water. It's, it's mind-boggling. But see, anything that might even come close to validating the Bible or the Christians or the creationists, taken together with the signature volatiles on Earth, these data suggest that no more, look at this, because that was the other one. People say that the, the, earth, uh, the water from Earth, after it formed, 
it came from outer space. Well, let's look at what the scientists say. It says, these data suggest that no more than 50% and probably less than 18% of Earth's water could have been added from space at the end of our planet's formation. Says Dr. Drake, this is from Water for the Rock, uh, from Science News. There is no explanation, none, as to why we have all the water that we have. It shouldn't be here. According to all models, and now isn't that interesting, all of their models suggest there should be no water, but it is interesting, the climate change, all of their models say we're doomed. Well, how good are those models? Are they as good as these models? Nobody's asking, and you're sure not being told. So what you're not being told about Earth, it is uniquely designed for, the, for life. It shouldn't have any water, and the magnetic field appears to be young. But the students aren't told that. This was from a team of Australian scientists led by theoretical physicist Paul Davies has proposed that the speed of light may not be a constant. Well, that's being now, it's been shown around the world from scientists that it is not a constant, nor are any of the constants constant. The public confidence in the constants of nature. Nature may be at an all-time low. Recent research has found evidence that the value of certain fundamental parameters, such as the speed of light or the invisible glue that holds nuclei together, may have been different in the past. There is no, absolutely no reason these constants should be constant, says astronomer Michael Murphy of the University of Cambridge. These are famous numbers in physics, but we have no real reason for why they are what they are. Do you see what I mean about what's not being told, what the students aren't being given, what the teachers aren't being given? That's just not right. That's why we want to just lay it all out there. We want to teach it all, folks. We want to bring all of the information, let you use the brains God has given you to come to your own conclusion. And where you come is up to you. It's between you and God, not me. I like that, that old cliche, you won't get to heaven on your mother's religion. Well, you won't get to heaven on my science either. It's your own relationship with the creator himself. Here's another problem for planetary scientists. This is out of Astronomy magazine. <clears throat> it says, if you set out to construct a perfect galaxy, you would be hard-pressed to design anything better than M74 in the constellation Pisces the Fish. This spiral galaxy is called the Grand Design Galaxy. How does that grab you? But it wasn't designed, you know, it was just random. But here's the other problem. The further out that they're looking with the telescope now and getting the spacecraft out there, they at first they thought they were going to find the edge of the universe, but all they found was more galaxies, more universe or galaxies, and more spiral galaxies, which, according to the scientists themselves, should be impossible if it is 4.5 billion years old. There should be no spiral galaxies. Period. But that's not what you're being told. I love this, John 3, 12. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? See, there are just some things that we don't know. That's a hard pill to swallow as a scientist. 
But God tells me that there are some last mysteries. There's just some things that only God knows. And you know what? That's okay. But we need to admit it and get on with it. But I would rather err in the favor of God than in the favor of man. That's, that's all it is. Two faith-based religions, where are you going to put your faith? See, this is that definition according to the National Academy of Science. Science is a particular way of knowing about the world. And science explanations are limited to those based on observations and experiments that can be substantiated by other scientists. Explanations that cannot be based on empirical evidence are not a part of science. That's from their own lips, not from the lips of creationists. But it brings us to this. Let God be true and every man a liar. You see, we have just tickled the tip of the iceberg, folks. This information here, the astronomy, uh, I have a, a DVD out there that, that covers not only our own solar system, but the stars, you know, the formation of the stars and the universe itself. But we also just received, and I think we still have a few left, I'm not sure, um, this is a three DVD set. They can be purchased separately, but this just came out. This was waiting for me when I got here. Uh, the producer, uh, Damien Kyle, sent these, uh, or I mean Kyle Justice, <laughs> Damien's a pastor, um, sent these. Uh, they are, they're, they're just now getting them out. There's going to be 13 sets. But on here, we've got Dr. Donald DeYoung, Dr. Russ Humphreys, Dr. Danny Faulkner, Dr. Jason Lyle, and Spike Fasaris. And by the way, 99% of what I just showed you came from Spike Fasaris, from his book and from his material. He was a, a researcher with NASA and with the military. We are we're on the, the, the verge, Lord. You know, as I showed you yesterday, knowledge will increase. Folks, it is increasing at such an astronomical rate. But it's so fun. It's so exciting to be part of this. Unfortunately, it's also like painting a target on your back. You know, the attacks are fierce. We need your prayers. We need your support so that we can take this material out to the kids so that they, they will know to ask questions. But you know what? They need to ask questions in a respectful manner. If a student dared to challenge me in my classroom, I annihilated him. See, I was the one that was lost. So prayer is what works, not confrontation. Pray for him. But we have, we have plenty of resources. We've got some great uh, uh, resources out there, material. Everything that, we've, uh, that I did yesterday and today is all on our, our little DVD called Science in the Bible, What You're Not Being Told. So with that, I'd like to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for the opportunities that you give us. We thank you for this time this weekend. Thank you for Jay and his heart and willingness to stand strong on the inerring word that you have provided for us, Lord. I thank you for the people that have come yesterday and today. I pray that you would just guide and direct and, and use this material, Lord, to bring up peace and just a, an understanding. And I thank you for this opportunity, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.